listening to the Bible 126 show. We're continuing with session 10 of the book of Leviticus. In this session, we're going to address chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. Leviticus is, of course, unfolding bedrock truths for Christians today. All these things we're going to read about were given to Israel in a literal way, and for many of them, the reason for doing them are long past. In fact, some of these Regulations we'll see applied to Israel only during the wilderness wanderings and were superseded once they entered Canaan. So some of these things had a, had a specific season on the one hand. But in any case, we regard them as extremely instructive uh, for the great spiritual lessons that underlie them. And that's what uh, Paul speaks, uh, means when he speaks in Romans 15, 4. He says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. And so there's instructions uh, Behind this, the detail and the specifics is what's God really saying. We're going to see a focus coming up here in these chapters with, with, that there's one place of sacrifice and the other emphasis will be the value of the blood. A lot of the details aren't important, but we'll under, what the undercurrent will be that God is very specific and He designated a specific place for the sacrifices and He underscored again and again the value of the blood. And uh, now this chapter had very direct application while they're wandering in the wilderness when the, the entire nation could encamp around the tabernacle. And so uh, we'll see is that some of these will only, only, regulations only fit where they're camping within reasonable access to the tabernacle. Once they get in the land and many of their inhabitants, many of, of the citizens of the nation of Israel could be 100 miles from the tabernacle, this no longer was feasible and it was superseded later in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, God revised these instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 12 substantially. But why all this anyway? What's God going to be getting into here? First of all, Israel had just left Egypt. Get the picture. And when they were in Egypt, even though they were slaves and so on, they were also immersed in this pagan, idol-worshiping culture. And there was a manifest danger of lapsing back into the, the concepts and rites and worship that uh, they were used to uh, for several generations in Egypt. In verse 7, we're going to encounter the word devils. The word is actually sirim, which is, actually means the hairy one, and it refers to goats. The Egyptians worshipped Mendes, the goat god. The Greeks worshipped him by the Greek name, the god Pan. It's, of course, familiar to many of us in Greek literature or other literature where it carries over. He had a tail and horns and a cloven feet and so forth. And medieval Christianity, of course, identified this form as the devil. You'll often hear about, if, you're in the, if you read uh, background in the occult and so forth, the goat of Mendes and so forth and all the folklore that surrounds it. It's interesting that our word panic comes from the, that period of time when it was intended to describe the terror that the devil caused. So the word pan, being God being associated with the devil, the word panic is, of course, our term for terror, but it actually has the, that root. From that background, we begin to understand why God insisted that Israel was forbidden to kill any animal in any place but the tabernacle. That was his way, among other things, to block them from any form that even is close to the pagan worship that they were, uh, that came from. He didn't want them inadvertently be uh, offering the animal to Pan, the goat god. And uh, we're also going to see an emphasis that under no circumstances was blood to be eaten. Why? Because it represents life. Life was sacred. Even animals were not to be slain needlessly. And blood, of course, speaks ultimately of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was the means of expiation. It was a symbol of reconciliation. 
It was the type, if you will, of that one great vicarious substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross. All these things pointed to that ultimately. It's interesting, when, whenever you encounter a hesitation uh, to mention uh, or preach on or speak about sin, you'll also discover that is a, associated with it is a hesitation or resistance to talk about the precious blood of Christ. J. Vernon McGee talks about uh, a dowager who was telling the young minister she sure hopes that he doesn't speak too much about the blood. And the minister said, that's not possible. It's impossible to speak too much about the blood, is what he really meant. Anyway, let's move on. Leviticus 17, verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses. Again, a reminder, this book, in large measure, is a direct quote from God himself. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, and unto all the children of Israel, and say unto them, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded, saying... And he goes on. See, these instructions were not just for the, uh, the, the priests alone, but for the entire nation. There's a shift of gears going on here. God is now going to reach down to, from their ceremonial life down into their private lives. He had made a difference between clean and unclean back in chapter 11, you may recall. But now he establishes regulations by which they were to eat clean animals. He's not talking about offerings here alone. The animal before they eat them may be offered, but he's talking about their diet and their, their procedures themselves. And they're going, they are to be different than all the nations around them. And uh, this is going to be emphasized again, especially in the next chapter. Verse 3. What man soever there be of the house of Israel that killeth an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp, and killeth it out of the camp, and bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood shall be imputed to that man. He hath shed blood, and that man shall be, guess what, cut off from his people. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, even that they may bring them unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, unto the priest, and offer them for peace offerings unto the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle, and burn the fat for a sweet savor unto the Lord. So, this is one of those strange laws that doesn't really focus on the ceremonial offering of sacrifices. These animals that are being talked about here are for food. You should realize, of course, that it was rare for them to eat meat because they were in a wilderness wandering mode. Later on, when get in the, even when they get in the land, uh, meat was relatively rare. Most of the herds were up in the Golan Heights. Meat itself was, was a, in a sense, what we might call a delicacy. The main point is that God was at their dinner table, that they were to, uh, you know, the, he, he was his attempt to shut out the heathen gods, in effect. See, among the heathen, meat was offered to the idol before it was eaten. So this procedure was a roadblock to idolatry. And when they were in Egypt, of course, they were, even though they were slaves, they were still idolaters. That's mentioned in uh, Ezekiel 20 and elsewhere. They worshipped animals, they, the shedding of blood and the offering meat were used in idolatry. They, God's trying to break them from that mold, from that background, from that culture. It's interesting, it only took a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And that's sort of what's going on here. Th this background is important. You really won't understand Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 8 and chapter 10, where Paul deals with, in those days, meat being offered to idols. To a Gentile, they could shrug that off because a Gentile believer knew that an idol wasn't anything. But a Jewish Christian, from, because of all this background, had real hang-ups. And that's what Paul tries to deal with in his letter in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 and elsewhere. In the interest of time, we'll keep moving because we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I encourage you in your notes, you might want to just look at the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 8 and the first 33 verses of 1 Corinthians 10 to get a feeling for how the same issue carries over into the church, but, but we have some different ground rules. We have, fortunately, a much broader liberty in Christ. And all of these things, of course, come to a head in the council of Jerusalem in uh, Acts 15, where this whole issue, they, they, they acknowledge formally that a Gentile believer did not have to conform to this, this background, this, this Jewish background, with the exception of a few simple things. James, the Lord's brother, quotes from Amos 9 in that famous passage, and you'll really, you really want to review Acts 15 in this background. We'll keep moving. Verse 7, 
And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, after whom they have gone a-whoring. This shall be a statute forever to them to all their generations. As I mentioned before, the word for devils here is actually hairy ones or goats. The same word, by the way, is used in reference to the idolatry that Jeroboam established in the northern kingdom. After Solomon died, his son Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they had a civil war, Jeroboam took the northern, what we call the northern kingdom, into idolatry. But it's interesting to read in, in uh, 2 Chronicles 11, verses 15 and 16. Speaking of Jeroboam and his reign in the northern kingdom, he says, After, And he ordained him priests for the high places, which are bad news. The high places were idol places. And for the devils, and for the calves, which he had made. The word devils are really his goats. And after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, get this, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. In other words, because of the goat worship and the calf worship in the northern kingdom, those that were faithful to the word of God left the country and moved south, where they could worship uh, as they knew they were supposed to um, in Jerusalem at the temple. Now, the reason I emphasize this, this is this, the whole chapter, if you study it, will destroy, pulls the rug out from under, if you will, this theory that there were ten lost tribes in Israel. Because they speak of tribal regions geographically, but that doesn't speak to the people who were commingled, because the, 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 the idol worshipers moved north and the faithful moved south, and so that was part of the dynamic going on. So I don't want to make a big thing of it except just to highlight that we often run into people or we see this theme in literature, the so-called ten lost tribes. It's a myth. It's a myth from a misunderstanding of the scripture. You can shred it by doing a little bit of homework. In any case, there is a danger to all of us of returning to idolatry. You may not be worshiping the goat of Mendez at home, but um, the, uh, the, all this popular enthusiasm for nature worship is a form of pantheism and has behind it some very serious possibilities. And by the way, let's also realize the scripture also tells us that covetousness, all covetousness is a form of idolatry. Yes, you can worship Porsches and Ferraris and Harley-Davidsons, but anyway, we'll move on. Verse 8, Thou shalt say unto them, Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers which sojourn among you that offer the burnt offering or sacrifice. But see, there's always a danger of a heathen in your midst. And uh, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. Verse 9, And bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and offer it unto the Lord, even that man shall be cut off from among his people. What God is really saying here is there's one place for sacrifice. Verse 10, And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any man, manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Now this verse, verse 11 of Leviticus 17, is considered by widely recognized as probably one of the key verses in the entire book, is that the life is in the blood. It's going to be restated in verse 14 and so forth, but the, it echoes all through the Scripture. The life is in the blood. It is idiomatically that way. It, of course, it's biologically that way in, in a very real physiological sense. It's also uh, used metaphorically. But the ultimate application of that, of course, is the blood that was shed on the cross. Every detail in the Scripture, and certainly in the book of Leviticus, points to Jesus Christ. And we can't, no matter how hard we try, there's no way to overemphasize the preciousness and the efficacy of that shed blood. It's a crucial, crucial, fundamental truth, and it's so tragic that it's become so fashionable in the church to sort of shrug that off as old-fashioned religion. No, no, it's the root theology that saves us all. Verse 12, Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. Whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof, and cover it with dust. For the blood of it is the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh. For the life of the flesh is the blood thereof, whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. 
God is certainly putting underlines on this, isn't He? Well, Jesus said something shocking in John chapter 6. He said, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I'll raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. What on earth did Jesus mean by that? Jesus is saying that we are to accept his shed blood for our sins by faith, and then we receive life. He shed his blood and gave us his life. His life, indeed, is in the blood. And uh, this is a very fundamental truth. This explains why Abel's sacrifice was more uh, excellent than Cain's back in Genesis chapter 4. It's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And, and Abel's sacrifice was anticipatory, or prophetic, or a foreshadowing of the shed blood on the cross. Cain was offering his, the fruit of his works from a cursed ground. That wasn't what God had specified. There's nothing offensive about the blood. The offense is in the sin that required it. You can't help but embrace the ancient, this, 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 I was going to call it a hymn. I think it's probably, I don't know what the specifications of a hymn, hymn, I guess we can't call them hymnals anymore, can we? They've got to be personals, right? Get it, is that right? Is that gender neutral way of, anyway. Anyway, the great, the great song is, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, it's amazing to see how much theology is poured out in those old songs. You know, so a lot of the modern music is very modern and very encouraging in some respects, and yet it's, it's interesting, it's almost totally stripped or devoid of any real theology. And it's amazing to contrast some of the modern music with some of the richness, theologically at least, of the old hymns. Anyway, let's move on to verse 15. Every soul that eateth that which died of itself or which was torn with beasts, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, and he shall be, and then he shall be clean. But if he wash not nor bathe his flesh, then he shall bear his iniquity. And now we're chapter 18. We'll keep moving because we've got a lot to cover. Now, up till now in this book, pretty much, the, you know, the regulations have concerned themselves with a ceremonial cleansing. But in these next three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, we're going to find a section that seems to recount, in a, in a real sense, the Ten Commandments and, in, and applies them to real-life situations. The section will open with a preamble, the first five verses of chapter 18, and it'll close with a postscript, the last few verses of chapter 20. It's a very much a clearly definitive section, if you will, within the... Uh, book of Leviticus. Many of these chapter headings are just convenience uh, for uh, for reference points, but but in this case we do we do seem to have a, a a packaging or parsing, if you will, of the book. Now, by the way, this section is in large measure a scathing indictment or refutation, I might say, of moral relativism. You know, it's, it's going to be a shock to contrast the popular belief structure in our culture with what God has specified. This whole moral relativism that's aggressively taught in our culture, in our schools, and in our politics, and everywhere else is uh, anti-Scripture. Uh, and three times in just this preamble, God says, I am the Lord. And he says it in the context, what he's saying is, God makes the rules. What defines right and wrong? God does. He draws the line in the sand. He determines all. He alone determines what's right and wrong. But furthermore, he does. He goes one step further, and he says he demands that his people be holy. Now, this coming, this chapter will, this particular chapter will primarily deal with the seventh commandment. Sexual sins are the main object. Verse one: The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, "Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God." After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelled, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. 
You shall do, do my judgments and keep mine ordinance to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, in which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. See, they've just come out of Egypt and they're heading into Canaan, both in front and behind. They're surrounded by idolatry, pagan practices that are even in themselves unhealthy, unhygienic. But more than that, they're also an affront to the Creator that is guiding and leading them. And uh, the Egyptians and the Canaanites both, as you study those cultures, they are grossly, disgustingly immoral. It's not just that they had some, you know, deviant rituals. They, are, they were really gross. There's nothing new in the new morality. You know, you read some of the literature in the last few decades, and you think they've discovered some new morality. Nonsense. No, it's just the old immorality uh, packaged in socially acceptable terms. And uh, I wouldn't even call it socially acceptable. It's a return to an old way of life that God abhors, not just in the Old Testament, but you can look at 1 Thessalonians 4, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Peter 1, and find God speaking out on all this. You and I, we are called to holy living. And in your notes, you might put 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1 as places to, to explore these issues. Some people say, well, we're just trying to reach the crowds. Be careful that you don't become part of the crowd in doing that. We now jump into a section here about sexual relations with relatives. Let's take the next three verses. Verse 6, None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of thy father, the nakedness of thy mother, shall thou not uncover. She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. These warnings, of course, are against what? Incest. And yet this sin wasn't confined to Israel. They found it in the Corinthian church. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with that very issue. Right in the church they're condoning it. And Paul's taking them apart on that issue. Verse 9, the nakedness of thy sister, the daughter of thy father and daughter of thy mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness shalt thou not uncover the nakedness of thy son's daughter or of the son, daughter's daughter, neither either <clears throat> their nakedness shalt thou not uncover, for theirs is thine own nakedness. Thine, the nakedness of thy father's wife's daughter, begotten of thy father, she is thy sister. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's sister. She is thy father's near kinswoman. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy mother's sister, for she is thy mother's near kinswoman. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's brother. Thou shalt not approach to his wife. She is thine aunt. Or is it aunt, I guess. Huh? And thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy daughter-in-law. She is thy son's wife. And thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. See, Egypt practiced these sins. Especially those of verse 9. The pharaohs and the Ptolemies practiced intermarriage of brother and sister. Very common. Also common in Rome. You get overtones of that. If you've seen the movie The Gladiator and so on, there were social arrangements in that culture that we would find astonishing. See, in the beginning, there was no law against this. Both Cain and Seth had to marry their sisters. And Abraham married his half-sister. Sarah was a half-sister. When he passes her off to Abimelech as a sister, he was only, he was only a half-truth. But now the law has been given, and that halts this practice. Verse 16 says, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife, it is thy brother's nakedness. Can you think of an exception to that? A little test question. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife, it is thy brother's nakedness. The kinsman redeemer. Yes, their Leverite marriage, exactly. Good for you. The law of the kinsman redeemer is stated in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And of course, it's a major prominent feature of the book of Ruth. You really won't understand what's going on there unless you understand several laws. The law of gleaning, the law of redemption to the land, and also the law of the Leverite marriage. It's all undergirding that. And that in fact, the study of the book of Ruth won't be clear unless you understand those laws. But even more than that, the book of Ruth prophetically shows you why those laws are critical to really understanding the New Testament, the book of Revelation. So I'll leave you with that challenge and you can move on. So 
It goes on now with other sexual sins. Verse 17, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, neither shalt thou take thy son's daughter or a daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, for they are her near kinswoman. It is wickedness. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. These relationships are, of course, by blood, not marriage. Uh, the problem, this was a, can you imagine the problem Jacob had where he married two sisters? You know, that was... Uh, not a happy situation. Of course, you should realize that Jacob was long before the law was given. Understand that. But still, he, 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 <laughs> it was not a happy time for him. Verse 19. And also thou shalt not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is put apart for her uncleanness. Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. God is raising barriers here for the, to protect the home from the licentious practices that were common among the Egyptians that they've left and the Canaanites that they're going to be entering into. You say, gee, check, that's all old-fashioned stuff. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. They had to face Egypt and Canaan. We have to face Madison Avenue and the entertainment industry and its corruption. It's, it's astonishing. It's tragic how the executives that run our entertainment industry have no grasp of what they're doing. It's hard to find a movie where it doesn't celebrate some form of aberration or compromise, what have you. They deliberately focus in these areas that are very dangerous areas. And for this, you can put your notes. You want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'll let you go through that as we move on. Verse 21. Thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. You know what they literally did? They had this image, a bronze image of Molech. He has arms out like this. And they heated it up till it was red hot. And then they placed the bodies of their children in his arms. You and I can't imagine that, I don't think. It's just astonishing. But, and there are even some scholars say, well, Israel never really did that. Nonsense. Second Kings 17.31, Jeremiah 7.31, Ezekiel 23, verses 37 to 39, are just a few of the references to that. You say, gee, that's awful. How could they do that? We do worse than that. They killed the, ba the babies on this bronze idol. We murder them in the holy of holies of the womb. When you get in those discussions with people about when life begins, always remember that John the Baptist started his ministry when he was nine inches long and weighed a pound and a half. He was spirit-filled and leaped for joy in the mother's womb. That should end any scriptural discussion about this issue. Verse 22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Boy. It's become politically protected in our country. Because God condemns it. He does, he condemns it in the Old Testament, of course. You just read one very clear assertion. There's been many others. But he also condemns it in the New Testament very descriptively. From Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to those things which are not convenient, and it goes on. Romans 1, remember that. You know, there's even one thing worse than homosexuality, in a sense. What was the sin that brought Sodom and Gomorrah down? It wasn't homosexuality. It was the public condoning of it. Lot was a city councilman. All the men of the city were outside his door trying to take these strangers for their own purposes. Isaiah, in his six woes, in chapter 5, singles this one out. He says, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, 
and sin, as it were, a cart rope. I always visualize that verse when I see the so-called gay pride parades, where they're not only homosexuals, but they proudly parade that down the main streets of a city or a town, what have you. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. You almost see the float going by. Sodom and Gomorrah's problem was that they were totally reprobate. They, uh, they had publicly condoned it. And you read Genesis chapter 19. Remember, you know, Lot sat in the gate. That means he was on the city council. Verse 23. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down there too. It is a confusion. You know, this is unspeakably debased and disgusting. And by the way, if you think this was confined to the fertility cults and the nature worship of those of the ancient past, I invite you to chat with the police department in your town about this kind of thing. doesn't make the press, but there are people that have to deal with it. Verse 24, Defile not you yourselves in any of these things, for in all these things the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you, and the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereupon it. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. See, the nations, you know, obviously, why did God, uh, you know, dispossess this land of the original inhabitants, the Canaanites? God was throwing them out for their own good reasons. The land was vomiting them. He was having the land vomit them out, in effect. Why? Because they committed these abominable and atrocious sins. They were put out of the land because God could not tolerate what was taking place. By the way, they were being eaten up with venereal disease. Why do you think God told them not to even touch a garment when they took down Jericho? You know, remember when Achan took the, the, the Babylonian dark garment and all that? The AIDS epidemic is spreading in our culture and around the world because it's politically protected. That's why Dr. Stan Monteith's famous book, was titled AIDS colon the unnecessary epidemic. You apply public health hygiene as they did with the Black Plague, it would be controlled. But because it's politically protected, and I'll even say encouraged, there's a major disaster occurring in Africa and Asia and even in our own country. Let's move on. Verse 26, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land gone which were before you, and the land is defiled, that the land spew not you out also, when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations... Even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore shall ye keep mine ordinance, that ye commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that ye defile not yourselves therein. I am the Lord your God. Question. Is God going to spew us out of the land we live in? Is this kind of thing going on? Is it characteristic of our culture? Scary stuff. This is the very cloud that hangs over America. We've become the primary exporter of everything God abhors. You can take a look at our briefing packages. Hosea, can you see? Which studies Hosea, especially chapters 4 through 14. And our little uh, uh, equivalent uh, thing called the Twilight's Last Gleaming. Take a good hard look at ourselves through the mirror of God's law. And it's scary. Let's go on to Leviticus 19. See, holiness is not just a theory. God intended it to be involved in every facet of our lives. Not just in the temple, in our homes. See, the law <laughs> demanded holiness, but couldn't supply it. That's what the book of Romans deals with so elegantly. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in sight, but by the, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, but fortunately, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. So that sin should not be reigning. We may stumble now and then, but it shouldn't be reigning in our lives. The word I am the Lord occurs 16 times in chapter 19. It's the Lord that's drawing the line between right and wrong in absolute terms. Let's jump right in. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, 
for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We tend, we tend to hear these phrases out of Leviticus and say, well, gee, that's right, that's Old Testament that applies to Israel. Let's hear what Peter says in chapter 1 of his first letter. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all matter of conduct. The word is conversation in the Old English, but it means conduct. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. He's quoting this very, very passage and applying it to us as Christians in the New Testament. Paul, in another way, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, says, Whether therefore ye eat, or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. That's staggering. You know, that means that we should have, be conscious of everything we do in our lives, even the trivial. I don't think there's anything trivial before the throne. God seems to care about it all. And I think we honor him by reflecting that specificity, that care. Now, the good news for all of us is that we have been given a dynamic, namely the Holy Spirit. Because as uh, Romans chapter 3 also continues, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Praise God. Well, let's move on to verse 3 of Leviticus. Uh, ye, ye shall fear every man his uh, mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Why, why is he focusing on father and mother? Very simply. The parent stands in the place of God to the child. Things need to begin at home. That's where, first, that's where a child first begins to get trained. How difficult it is for a child who's had an abusive father to discover that God really loves him. And how natural it is for a child to understand that his heavenly father loves him if he can see that behavior reflected consistently in his dad. Heavy responsibility for both parents, actually. And keep my Sabbaths, he adds. I won't start on this one if you're... If you think the problem of Saturday or Sunday is a simple one, I encourage you to take a look at our briefing package called The Seventh Day. We're not Seventh-day Adventists. We're not under the law. But there's far more background that you might benefit from by understanding. Now, we have it made in our culture because we have both Saturday and Sunday off. But the Sunday is not the seventh day. Now, the Sabbath was pointed to as a specific link between God and Israel. But it wasn't ordained in, in uh, Exodus <laughs> They were observing in Exodus 16, before Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. It was ordained in Eden, something much more fundamental going on here. And we might do well to do some reflection on that. Verse 4, Turn ye not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Now this one covers obviously the first two commandments. You know, we see idolatry and meaningless rituals even in religion today. In fact, that's, one could define religion as just being that. Pageantry, yes. Meaning, no. But let's move on. Verse 5, And if ye offer a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord, ye shall offer it at your own will. It shall be eaten the same day ye offer it, and on the morrow. And if ye ought remain until the third day, it shall be burnt with fire. And it shall be eaten on the third day. It is abominable. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone that eateth it shall bear his iniquity, because he hath profaned the hallowed thing of the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Well, there's not much new here except an emphasis. Your offerings may be voluntary. That's what a peace offering was. It was voluntary. But if you're going to offer it, you follow God's instructions meticulously. In other words, you've got to come to God on His terms. If you're going to do it voluntarily, great, but do it right. You know, it's really disturbing. I think we all have seen tendencies among Christians to presume certain special liberties or certain rules aren't really for them. They do some things just casually. Well, because it's the ministry. In the contrast, that there's such joy when you see real professionals with real commitment to their tasks in the Christian community. Uh, it's a little too rare, I guess, but uh, every once in a while we run into a situation where we see a, you know, TV crew or whatever that are really, really sharp, really know what they're doing, that, and yet they're in the ministry. How tragic it is that so much of what is in the ministry, just because it's voluntary for a large measure, is often not really as sharp as it should be. We're very, very grateful here 
uh, at K-House. We've got a very, very committed, dedicated uh, staff. I've, I've never been happier in the, entire, in, the in the decade we've been doing this with the, with the people we have and with the volunteers. We've got a great team. It's wonderful. But that's because they have a real servant's heart and they've got a, an attitude that they take it seriously. Even though they're volunteers and giving of themselves, they're giving, them to, giving themselves to the Lord. That's precious. Anyway, moving verse 9. And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of the harvest. Thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou garner every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now this, of course, you recognize as the law of gleanings. You let your crew make one pass through the field. What you missed was left for the uh, destitute, the poor, the homeless, what have you. And that's a very key factor in understanding the second chapter of the little four-chapter book called Ruth and the Law of Gleanings. And uh, it's interesting, God never put anyone on charity. The poor were taken care of by giving them an opportunity to work together. Interesting principle underlying that. We'll come back to that, I think. Anyway, let's go to verse 11. Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie to one another. Ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. This restates, of course, the Eighth and Ninth Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 15 and 16. The Third Commandment is also included in verse 12. God's name is holy. In business, God's man is to demonstrate the holiness of God's name by honest and true dealings. The word name was not just a label. It represented his whole reputation, his whole character. You know, even among secular people with class, they say, my word is my bond. You can rely on their, maybe not their theology or even maybe their morality, but you sure can rely on their ethics because they understand the, the need to protect the name, a reputation, what have you. Well, if we're going by the name of, if we're Christians, then we have the name of Christ emblazoned on us Boy, are we on parade. We need to remember that. Never lose sight of that. <laughs> Every once in a while, when I'm either in a marketplace or with some, uh, some situation, losing my patience. I know it shocks you to discover that I lose my patience. I'm kidding, of course. Obviously, I do. Um, what really is, brings me up, Nancy, is be careful. You might be recognized. Whoops. <laughs> you know, whether it's in traffic whether it's in a parking lot, whether it's before some clerk who's uh, not accepting your credit card or whatever it is, you're on parade. I wish my conduct was more exemplary than it often is. I was walking through a hotel lobby once and someone, hey, there's Chuck Missler in the flesh. I says, he's always in the flesh. Be careful. <laughs> Verse 13. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but thou shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. That's very straightforward. I don't have to amplify any of that, except maybe to acknowledge the rarity of it. Verse 15. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. This verse 15 is addressed to judges. I love what Socrates said. He says, four things belong to a judge, to hear courteously, to answer wisely, to consider soberly, and to decide impartially. Shakespeare in, in uh, King Henry VIII says, Heaven is above all yet. There sits a judge that no king can corrupt. How true. Verse 16, Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. What's the most dangerous thing in the world? Is it hydrogen bombs? No, it's a tongue. What's the most painful sin in the world? What, what sin, what specific sin has probably caused more pain among more people than any of the other sins? Maybe not the worst sin, but the most painful sin. Which would it be? Gossip. You betcha. Thou shalt not go up and down, and down, uh, up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor, I am thy Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt not in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, nor suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, there it is. Tucked away in the Old Testament. Tale-bearing is slander. Someone said you can't believe everything you hear, but you sure can repeat it. That's not advice. It's intended to be a facetious remark. 
Verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let the cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment be mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. What on earth? What's the point? This is intended to be instruction that you cannot mingle truth and error. That's really what God, that's the underlying concept that I think uh, is demonstrated here. Verse 20, whosoever lieth carnally with a woman that is a bondmaid betrothed to a husband and not at all redeemed, freedom given her, she shall be scourged. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. He shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord and unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, even a ram for a trespass offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of a trespass offering for the Lord for his sin, which he hath done. And the sin which he hath done shall be forgiven him. Now, God is not lending approval to slavery. But it's uh, very similar to the remarks Jesus makes in Matthew 19 and 8 and so forth on divorce because of the hardness of your heart and so forth. Anyway, verse 23. And when you shall come to the land, and shall have planted all manner of trees for food, and you shall count the fruit thereof as uncircumcised, three years shall it be as uncircumcised, and you it shall not be eaten of. But in the fourth year, all the fruit thereof shall be holy uh, to praise the Lord with all. And in the fifth year shall ye eat of the fruit thereof, and it may be yield unto you the increase thereof. I am the Lord your God. Now most of us, I don't think, are dendrologists, but... I think most of us have probably heard that young fruit trees will grow faster and yield better if their buds are nipped off. Excuse the expression, circumcised. <laughs> At least for the first few years. Interesting. Verse 26, Ye shall not eat anything with the blood, neither shall ye use enchantment nor observe times. Those are horoscopes, in other words. Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. Ye shall, ye shall not make any cuttings on your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Here are six commandments that condemn the practices of the heathen cultures in both Egypt and especially Canaan. He goes on, Do not prostitute thy daughter to cause her to be a whore, lest the land fall into whoredom and the land become full of wickedness. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Again, the Sabbath is to be observed strictly. Verse 31, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. This is one of the many warnings in Scripture about this. Don't regard this as simply an injunction against ignorance or superstition. These are not just harmless superstitions. They are dangerous they have a supernatural and a satanic character and are to be avoided as dangerous. Be very careful of those things. Horoscopes, wizards, spiritism in any shape. Be careful. Be really careful. Avoid that. Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of an old man and fear thy God. I am the Lord. In other words, you're supposed to respect old age. That's often repeated in Scripture. Verse 33, If a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him, but the stranger that dwelleth with you, you shall, shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So a stranger was supposed to be treated kindly, and he's to be loved. And a reminder, of course, that they too, many times, it's interesting how often God highlights for them to remember that they were once strangers in a strange land. Verse 35, Ye shall do no unrighteousness, in judgment or in a midyard and in weight or in measure, just balances, just weights, and a just ephah, which was the volumetric measure in those days, and a just in. Shall ye have? I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were to be honest, basically, representing God in their dealings. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes, my judgments, and do them. I am the Lord. Now we get to Leviticus chapter 20. We're going to talk about the death penalty. God instituted capital punishment. It's amazing how many people are really bothered by that. By the way, nowhere in the Word of God is punishment given for the purpose of reforming a criminal. That was not the objective. If you don't believe in the death penalty, let me ask you the same question that tends to pervade the book of Job. Do you mean to say that you are better than God? God makes no apology for the death penalty. In Numbers 35, verse 33, he says, So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are, for blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him who shed it. That's God's principle. It's interesting as we study these, these laws and things and the practice in ancient Israel to make an interesting observation. You realize there were no prisons in Israel? They had no prisons. Fascinating. 
Now let's, go in, let's go into the chapter. Verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Whosoever he be of the children of Israel, or of strangers that sojourn in Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. As we talked before, the, you know, the worship of Moloch was cruel, savage, brutal, satanic, um, on the one hand, and yet child brutality in our own land is... Well, it certainly could be more curtailed if we had stronger judges and such. It's still being handled strangely. But anyway, verse 3, And I will set my face against that man, and I will cut him off from among his people, because he hath given of his seed to Moloch to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. See, idolatry, by the way, was high treason in a theocracy. This, you know, Israel was in what we would probably classify as a theocracy. In that context, idolatry is high treason. God treated, treated it that way. Verse 4, And if the people of the land do anyways hide their eyes from the man, when he giveth of his seed to Amalek, and, unto Moloch and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and will cut him off and all that go a-whoring after him to commit whoredom unto Moloch from among their people. See, this is what we'd call misprison of a felony. To know about not do something about it is to be a participant. Scary. Verse 6, And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go to a whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. False, re false religion is obviously clearly satanic and dangerous. Satan is a liar and the father of it, as Jesus tells us in John 8, verse 44. And if you look at the last verse, the last verse in this chapter is sort of odd because the chapter seems to conclude by verse 26. Verse 27 seems like it belongs up here. A man also or a woman who hath a familiar spirit or a wizard shall be surely put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Very straightforward when you put it right here. It's a little odd where it sort of tang hangs on the end of the chapter. But let's move on. Verse, we're back here at verse 7. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. For every one that curseth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. He hath cursed his father and mother. His blood shall be upon him. That's a, a somewhat extreme view of the fifth commandment. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer or adulteress shall surely be put to death. The man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lie with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They shall have wrought confusion. Their blood shall be upon them. And if a man lie with mankind, he shall lieth with a woman. Both of them shall have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man take a wife and her, and her mother, it is wickedness. It shall be burnt with fire, both he and they, and there shall be no wickedness among you. If a man lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and, shall, and ye shall slay the beast. That's interesting. If a, if a woman approach to any, uh, unto any beast and lie down there unto you, thou shalt kill the woman and the beast, and they shall surely be put to death, and their blood shall be upon them. In other words, adultery, in its broadest sense, in any form, was punished with death. I was tempted to make sort of a facetious remark. If we enforced this, we wouldn't have any traffic problems in our cities. And I meant that sort of facetiously, but I shouldn't make light of something. This is, so, you know, if there's anything that characterizes our culture, it is the loss of the sanctity of a commitment in our marriages and in our conduct and, it's, uh, and in our business. Of course, the sins of sex have toppled more empires than any other, um, probably any other factor. Verse 17, if a man take a sister, his father's daughter, his mother's daughter, see her nakedness, she, and, and she see his nakedness, it is a wicked thing, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He hath uncovered his sister's nakedness, he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lie, shall lie with a woman having her sickness, and cover her nakedness, he hath uh, discovered her fountain, he hath, she hath uncovered the fountain of her blood, and both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy mother's sister, nor of thy father's sister, nor of or he that uncovereth his near kin, they shall bear their iniquity. If any man shall lie with his uncle's wife, and he hath uncovered his uncle's nakedness, they shall bear their sin, and they shall die childless. If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. And of course, there are some legal exceptions to that we've talked about. Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments, and do them, and the land whither I bring you to dwell in will spew you not out. The failure... 
To obey God is what brought on the Babylonian captivity. They, they indulged in these things, and because of that, God put them into slavery for 70 years. All you have to do is compare 2 Kings 21. Just go through that chapter and get a perspective of the kinds of idolatry and, and, and the stuff that they were into. Verse 23, And you shall not walk in the manners of the nation, which I cast out before you, for they committed these things, and therefore I abhorred them. But I have said unto you, Ye shall inherit their land. I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, have separated you from other people. And here in your notes, I encourage you to put Deuteronomy 29, verses 24 through 28. It's a commentary on this in great detail. Verse 25, You shall therefore put a difference between clean beasts and unclean, between unclean fowls and clean. You shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl or by any manner of any living thing that creepeth on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. God began with their diet in the series, and He now finishes with it. In verse 26, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord. I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. Well, Israel's returned to the land, but having all kinds of problems. Why? Because they have returned to the land, but they haven't returned to God. And it's going to take uh, the, the great tribulation itself to drive them to the wall. And this last verse, that seems to be the concluding, the, the flavor of the section. This verse 27 seems to belong earlier, but in any case, it is where it is. Okay. Book of Leviticus continues. We covered four chapters tonight. We're getting down to the end. There's some very, very different chapters forthcoming. But heavy stuff. God takes holiness seriously. And that's, I think, the underlying message to all of us. We may not be tied up with some of the things they're talking about in, in a, in an immediate sense, but we certainly are grappling with the same temptations and the same dangers that God was trying to keep them from. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Oh, Father, you are indeed holy. Holy, holy, holy. Oh, Father, how we would seek to understand that more fully. Not only your holiness, Father, but our sinfulness. We do come before your throne, Father, acknowledging our own sin, our unworthiness. And Father, we are incredibly grateful that you have resorted to such extremes to teach us, to communicate to us, and above all, to provide for our inadequacies, for our sin, for this incredible gulf that's between us. We thank you that you've bridged it through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on that cross so long ago. Oh, Father, we would, through your Holy Spirit, earnestly seek to understand the significance of that blood shed for us. But above all, Father, through your Holy Spirit, we thank you, Father, that you have given us the living Spirit within us, that sin need not have dominion over our lives, but rather, Father, that we might have victory, not by our flesh or not by our resolve, but by your Spirit, Father. Help us to really understand how to walk moment by moment, step by step, day by day, by that Spirit, that we might be more pleasing in thy sight, that we might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities you've provided each of us, that we might be more effective at ministering to others who have experience the kinds of pain, the kinds of darkness, the kind of setbacks that each of us have had at different times. We pray, Father, that you'd let not the lessons be wasted, that we might be fruitful. Help us each to grow in grace, the knowledge of our Lord, 
and illuminate that path before us that we might be more responsive in the days that remain as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our high priest, our ultimate sacrifice, in whose name we do pray. Amen.